Amen. Well, please turn with me now in your Bibles to 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, as we make our slow progress through this letter, looking this morning at verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus Christ, Peter says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let us pray. Oh Lord, as we come to your word now that we might study it and that we might know more of the glories of our Lord Jesus, we are dependent upon the ministry of your Holy Spirit. It was he who inspired Peter as he sat in Rome to write these words, and we need him now to unpack them for us and apply them to our hearts. We pray that your Spirit would come and that he would be our guide and our teacher. And all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Just what does it mean to be a Christian? In one sense, that's easy, right? It's to have faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But what does that mean? And the answer to that question feels, at least to me, perhaps more confused now than ever before. At the danger of sounding overly political, there is a strange kind of civic Christianity uh, in America. I think it's really always been there, but now perhaps more than ever, Christianity has been co-opted by particular political viewpoints on both the right and the left, and adherents of those viewpoints take the name of Christian to signal something about themselves while often showing very little evidence of saving faith in Christ. It's the danger that has always been present, I think, at least since Constantine, to think of Christianity as a kind of loose affiliation. Something that can be added on to our lives, something that can be filled with whatever subjective viewpoint we ourselves bring to it. A badge of social affiliation to signal to other people where we stand in our society. It is that understanding of Christianity that produces that fatal phrase that begins, I like to think of being a Christian as as if it were a hollow turn just waiting to be filled by our own personal opinion. But is that what it is? Is that what Christianity is? Is that what being a Christian means? Is being a Christian a loose affiliation that has no substantial objective consequences for our lives? Does saying that we have faith in Christ bring us into a sphere of fraternity but without any further meaningful obligations for how we conduct ourselves. Well, no. And the testimony of Scripture is that to truly come to saving faith is to have our lives completely transformed 
and totally reoriented so that we are now marked and shaped and defined by our fellowship with God. And that is the point that Peter here makes as he gets now into the body of his letter, setting out for his readers a substantial and robust understanding of just what it means to be a Christian. Now, in the opening verses, in verses 1 and 2, Peter has set the scene for his letter. Do you remember we've been saying that these opening phrases, those opening words, those opening verses, as, as formal as they are, are retooled by the apostle as they are done throughout the Old Testament to establish the scope of the letter that it will follow them. And so having introduced himself as an apostle and as a, a, a doulos of Christ, a servant, really a slave of Christ, Peter has established that his whole intent and purpose in ministry is to point past himself so that his readers behold the magnificent glory of Jesus Christ specifically as it is manifested in his resurrection from the grave. And Peter has established that his whole ministry is really wrapped up in one central point. His whole goal in life and ministry is to help his readers, to help his hearers behold the manifold glories of Jesus Christ, who as the Redeemer, in his death and resurrection, has crushed the head of evil under his feet. And Peter has addressed his readers as those who have come to know the fullness of that gospel. Remember we said that in verse 1, that phrase, a faith of equal standing, is more to do with a, a body of doctrine or a content of faith rather than the subjective experiences of the believer. So Peter is saying that, that through that, as they have gained a faith of equal standing with him, an apostle, through that, that same gospel, his readers have, he has reassured them, have come to grasp the unique peace of God that comes through the grace of God manifested in Jesus Christ risen from his grave. Those two opening verses framing the whole letter and saying essentially that those who have come to know Jesus Christ crucified and risen have gained access to God and in him have found rest for their sin-weary souls. But now, as Paul begins the body of this letter, as he moves on from those introductory words, he begins not by moving away from them or, or changing the subject, but rather he moves on just drilling deeper into what all of that means. As Peter moves on now into verses 3 and 4 here, what he is doing is expanding on those opening thoughts, helping his readers to see both how that works and what all of that means for their lives. So here, in verses 3 and 4, he digs down into the glories of the gospel, and he explains to us that when we come to know Jesus Christ, when we come to put our trust in Him, renouncing our sin and holding on to Him by faith, we are made, Peter says here, partakers of the divine life. Now, that's a phrase, I think, that can trip us up a little because it almost sounds like Peter is saying that we become somehow divinized. 
that we somehow become absorbed into the deity and, and maybe even become divine ourselves. Now, that's not what he is saying, right? And I think those of us, even with a fairly rudimentary understanding of Christianity, know that the hope of the gospel is not that we become gods, right? Not that Mormon conception of salvation in which we get elevated to God. But if that is not what Peter is saying with this phrase, then, then what is he saying? Well, it's clearly a provocative statement, right? It's provocative now, and it would have been provocative when he first wrote it, maybe even more so then, as that phrase brings with it some Hellenized concepts, some concepts that come out of the Greek and, and Roman conception of, of the gods and our relationship with them. This is not an accident. Peter uses this provocative phrase deliberately because he wants us to read it and to sit up and take notice of the true nature of our salvation and of the full glories that we receive from God when we are united to Christ by faith. It's a statement that is meant to open our eyes so that we behold the incredible intimacy that we have with God in our salvation, not just being brought close to God, but intimately tied up with and united to God himself. What Peter is talking about here, when he uses that phrase, partakers of the divine nature, is the doctrine of union with Christ. A doctrine that is so important throughout the New Testament and a doctrine that is so important for us if we are to properly understand what it means to be a Christian. You see, there's a, a great temptation for us to think that our relationship to God in Christ is external and contractual. That we come to God and to put it crudely, we, we make a deal with him. We put our faith in Christ, and he forgives our sins. Or if we think about it in less cynical terms, if we think about it in terms of the parable of the prodigal son, for example, we grasp the intimacy of our restoration, our sin filthiness removed by the grace of God, replaced by the robes of Christ's righteousness put on us so that we can now be reconciled to God and dwell with Him now and forevermore. And that is true, wonderfully true. Both of those things are wonderfully true. It is the promise of the gospel that if we come to God with faith in Christ, then we do receive the forgiveness of our sins. Right? It lies at the very heart of the gospel, the promise of God. Jeremiah 31, 34, that He will forgive our sins and remember them no more. And that wonderful reconciliation with God, it too lies at the very heart of the gospel. We are brought back in. We are cleansed from our sin. We are wholly restored to the Father's favor. It is the concept of propitiation that we talked about last week, isn't it? The wrath of God against us in our sin, exchanged for the favor of God for us in but you see, what Peter is saying here is that the true wonders of our redemption actually go even further than that. 
And they actually go down deeper than that. What Peter wants us to see is that in our salvation, we don't just come close to God, but we are bound up, as it were, in the very life of God itself. Throughout the New Testament, the blessings of the gospel are routinely couched in the terms of what we could call an organic union with Christ through faith. John Murray, professor of systematic theology at Princeton Seminary and then one of the founding faculty of Westminster Seminary, once wrote that nothing, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. He said, nothing is more central or more basic than union with Christ. It is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Right? And you understand that is not hyperbole on the professor's part. Right? Even just very basically, if you this afternoon go to esv.org and you search for the phrase, in Christ. Five pages of results come up. And that's not including cognate phrases and images. This is an image, this is a concept that runs throughout the New Testament. That when we come to Christ, we are not just brought close to Him or brought close to God, but that we are united to Him in an organic and living way so that all the blessings of salvation come to us through that union, right? The idea is that when we come to Christ in faith, we are incorporated into Christ, united to Him fundamentally, so that His life now pulses through our veins, so that His Holy Spirit now resides in our hearts. And because we are united to Him, all the blessings of salvation that He has won now become ours as well. It's the image that Jesus himself uses in John 15, verse 4. John 15, verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Not, not abide with me, but abide in me and I in you. You think, well, what does that mean, Jesus? And he says, this is what it means. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? That's, a, that's a powerful image, isn't it? Jesus borrows from the world of horticulture. And, and he says, you understand when a, a branch is engrafted into the vine. Uh, it's, not, it's not enough for it to come close to that vine. But it has to be incorporated into it, right? You, maybe you've done this. Maybe you've seen it. But if you, if you graft one plant into another, you don't just wrap them up next to each other. You, you cut into the stem, and then you place the other stem in there, and then you bind it up. They have to abide in it. That branch has to abide 
in the vine if it is to bear fruit. And Jesus says, that is how you are to understand your relationship to me. Not just close to me, not just with me, but in me, incorporated in an organic way. It's the same image that Paul picks up and uses in Romans 11, verse 17, when he said of Gentile inclusion that some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And it is this idea of this union with Christ so that he is no longer external to us, but we are incorporated into him. And the life of Christ the vine now runs in the life of believers, the the branches. Or, if we were to use another image, this is what lies behind Paul's extraordinary depiction of salvation in Ephesians 5. As he talks about the intimate one flesh union of husbands and wives. Do you remember that that passage? Paul speaks so beautifully of the nature of of marriage and the union of husband and, and wife. But then in verse 31, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is saying, by faith in Christ, you are united to him in a one flesh union of which the marriage of husband and wife is analogous and illustrative. Hugh Martin, a 19th century Scottish minister, described it like this. He said, the divine scheme is that all fullness dwells in Christ. That all the treasures of knowledge and of wisdom are hid in him. That all spiritual blessings for the church are treasured up in him. That no saving gift or grace or blessing is given. So to speak, past him or out of him, all are given in him. Hence, Hugh Martin continues, an actual conjunction with him by the indwelling of his own spirit and the embracing action of our faith is indispensable to our enjoying the redemption which is in Christ or any of the blessings of his purchase. That's what Peter is saying here. That all the treasures of knowledge and of wisdom are hid in him. Look again at our passage. His divine power. Peter says, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellency, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. In Romans 3.23, Paul wrote that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What Peter is saying here is that for those who believe the gospel and put their faith in Christ, we are brought back to that glory of God. Not just brought near to the glory of God like like Moses on Mount Sinai or like the priests in the tabernacle or in the temple. But Peter is saying that we are now wrapped up in that glory of God, participating now in that glory of God by our faith union with Christ. 
It's what Paul would describe in Colossians 2, verses 9 and 10, essentially rephrasing the same thought that Peter has here when he says, in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Robert Letham, in his book, Union with Christ, put it like this. He said, we are called to partake of what God is. This is more than mere fellowship. Fellowship entails intimate interaction, but not participation in the nature of the one with whom such interaction takes place. Peter's language means that this goes far beyond external relations. It stops short of sharing in the being of God, but there is an actual participation in the divine nature. And it is in that union with Christ, and in that participation of the divine nature that we receive all the blessings of God. It is through this union with Christ that we receive the precious and very great promises of God. Now, what are those very precious and very great promises? Well, the things that God promised to His people in the unfolding covenants throughout the Old Testament. What are the, the, the precious and very great promises that we receive from God in Christ? That is the promise of salvation from the grip of evil through the work of a Redeemer who would go on to create a glorious kingdom of the redeemed and give them peace from their enemies forevermore and reconcile them wholly to God. And how are those promises secured? Through the faithful life of Jesus Christ, through His obedience to the law, throughout His life, through His faithfulness to the will of His Father to the point of death on a cross through his victory over sin at the cross, demonstrated in his resurrection where his satisfaction of the curse of God against our sin and his total defeat of evil was put on glorious display. But listen, how do you get that, Christian? You understand that the, that the precious and very great promises of God in those covenants, you understand that they are Christ's reward for his faithful obedience. Right? He is the one who has earned those precious and very great promises. He is the one who by his obedience has earned the blessings of those covenants. So how do you, Christian, get them? How do you share in them? Well, you get it by being bound up with Christ. You get it by being organically united to Christ so that in him, all the blessings of God are now yours too. Meditating on Ephesians 5. And the analogy of Christ's relationship to the church is that of husband and wife. Martin Luther beautifully wrote, Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of sin, death, and condemnation. Let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ, and grace, life, and salvation to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife that which is his. For in giving her his own body and himself, 
how can he but give her all that he is? And in taking to himself the body of his wife, how can he but take to himself all that is hers? I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's Peter's thought here. That in Christ, in Christ, in this one flesh union that we have with Christ, in this mysterious conjunction that we have with Christ through faith, then we are granted all the precious and very great promises of God. It's Hugh Martin, isn't it? That all spiritual blessings for the church of God are treasured up in Christ and no saving gift or grace or blessing is given past Him or out of Him, but all are given in Him. It's 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. What Peter wants us to see here is the deep, deep riches of our salvation, not just simply from Christ, but in Christ. He wants us to see that in Christ we have this profound fellowship with God. And in that union we have been given all the blessings of God. And we have been made heirs of all of the promises of God. It counters the idea of being promoted by these false teachers that had come into these churches in Asia Minor that Paul was first writing to. That there is some kind of higher life that can be attained through their secret knowledge. Already, Paul says, by faith in Christ, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. By faith in Christ, you have been united with Christ, and therefore you have been bound up with the life of God. And you understand, Peter is, Peter's pounding away at this idea that there is something boring or insufficient about the apostolic gospel. He's pounding away this idea that, that something must be added to it in order to break through to a higher sphere of blessing. Peter says, this is crazy. In Christ, all of the blessings of God are ours. And that while we in our sin fell short of the glory of God, in Christ, we have not just been brought near to the glory of God, but we are now participators in the glory of God. There could be no greater blessing available for a fallen and sinful human being than to be saved and redeemed to such a glorious extent. But notice, this has a moral component to it. We are called into the very glory and excellence of God, Peter says, and we have in Christ escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter's going to go on and press his readers to the pursuit of holiness and moral virtue that said that in the face of this false teaching that taught them a kind of antinomianism that said that now they had forgiveness in Christ, they could do whatever their hearts desired. And here Peter sets it up. This is the foundation of what he is about to go on and say. This is a, a cumulative argument that he will be making. And the point that he wants his readers to establish in their minds here is that our union with Christ, 
our participation in the divine nature, our intimacy with God has a distinctly moral component to it. It has distinctly moral consequences to it. Rankin Wilborn, in his book on union with Christ, writes, Jesus cleanses us from both the penalty and the power of our sins. He is the double cure. He not only declares us holy, but he also empowers us to be holy. Union with Christ means Christ is in you. The presence and power of Jesus now dwells within you by his Spirit. That's why he's called the Holy Spirit, because he is none other than the presence and power of the obedient Christ himself. And just as Christ lived a completely holy life and was able to overcome every temptation, so now, because he is within you, he gives you a new disposition to live for him. It's just what Peter wrote in his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Our union with Christ necessarily compels us to a pursuit of holiness. We cannot be engrafted into the vine of Christ and pursue a life of a wild branch, to use the imagery of Romans 11. We cannot be wed to a holy Christ in a one flesh union and still pursue a life of moral promiscuity. The whole conception of union with Christ and participation in the divine nature necessitates an understanding of the self that is totally and utterly transformed in Christ. And as Peter says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Augustine, in his confessions, prayed, grant what you command and command what you will. That's, that's it, right? That's this. That's what Peter's saying. That we are commanded to live a life that manifests the glory and the excellencies of, of God. And by His Holy Spirit within us, He gives us what He commands. Now, Peter will go on. He'll develop this, this thought through the rest of this chapter. But right here, as Peter begins the meat of his letter, he establishes this paradigm of salvation that needs to be foremost in the hearts of God's people, that we have been, as someone put it, saved from God, by God, and for God. And what that means is that true Christianity is so much more than what the anemic cultural Christianity that surrounds us says that it is. This is not a loose affiliation. This is not a political signal marker. This is not just part of your heritage. When you understand the gospel like this, when you understand Christianity is fundamentally involving an organic union with Christ, then it is so much more than those pitifully meager thoughts convey. It is a life of total transformation. It's a holy new life with new loves and new priorities and new parameters and new ambitions. 
It's a life wrapped up in the glories of God. It's a life that is situated in the heavenlies and that pursues godliness. It's a life that loves the law of God because it loves the God of the law. Christians, we have to pursue a deeper and fuller grasp of all that we have received in Christ. We have to understand that Jesus is not just the dispenser of blessing, but that He is Himself the sphere of our blessing. That He is the one in whom we have been granted all the blessings of God. Let us pray. For Father in heaven, how manifold the riches of the redemption that is found in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have contented ourselves with the shallows and drive us on that we would be people that seek to dive down deep, that we might see more of the fullness of all that has come to us by our union with Christ. Drive us on, Lord, that we would not play with our Christianity, that we would understand that it is something that has radically transformed us. Lord, help us to get our minds around the doctrine of the new birth in Christ. That in Him we have not just been made a little better, but we have been made completely new. Lord, may Your Spirit continue to beat this into our heads and into our hearts and teach us more and more of the excellencies of Christ. Amen.